1: It is my pleasure, delight, thrill, excitement. I'll stop there to have my friend Janet Parshall on the broadcast today. Janet, I was trying to recall when we first met. and
0: Well, I sat in the pews of your church for a long time. Yeah,
1: yeah. Was there maybe an NRB event prior to that? You know, I don't know. I can't remember anything. I don't know
0: anything. either. You know, I just feel like we've just been brother and sister for a long period of well, time. Well,
1: you and Craig, I remember you'd sneak in and sit in the back at the first service. you drive like an hour and a half. I go,
0: what are you doing driving all the way up here <laughs> to Because when you're being fed a banquet, you will drive an hour and a half. That's why.
1: <laughs> well, you're kind. And then, of course, our different tracks and media. You, of course, with the radio doing such an unbelievable ministry and job. And we would cross tracks at NRB and Moody events. And then you were so kind to come help us at the Moody Radio when I was still in Chicago. And you've since gone on to have a program, syndicated program. And you're a busy lady. So thank you for taking some time to talk to us.
0: Oh, I'm thrilled. And by the way, let the record reflect your honor that I'm at Moody because of you. And sports pylons, you recruited me And I'm very, very grateful that you did. And I just, it was a big step of faith to say, okay, uh, Lord, is this where you want me to go? And you were the one that knocked on the door and said, come on, I'd like you to join this team. And I really do thank you for that. Well,
1: I'm glad you said yes. Okay, Janet, we're gonna have two great interviews with you. Today, we wanna talk about the 10 questions. And so let's jump right in. Number one, this word I use in context is sort of a double entendre. We talk Mm -hmm. about understanding the Bible in context before you apply it. But then we also ask our friends, Okay, Janet, how do you live the life of Christ in the context where He has you?
0: Wow. Well, I love the word in context because I think we often in the church just like to take a verse out of context, and we like to apply it And instead of seeing it in the contextual environment in which it lives, which means you have to look before and you have to look after. So I was just a Midwest kid, married my high school sweetheart, came to know the Lord as my Savior when I was six and thought we would live and die in the house that my husband grew up in. I mean, it was father knows best all the way, and I never thought beyond those parameters. God had other plans. And as our four babies came into the world, Sarah, Rebecca, Samuel, and Joseph, I started realizing that all the protection I had living in a Christian home was really not representative of what was happening outside my little tent. I stuck my nose out, and I realized the world had turned upside down, and that my kids were in the crosshair of this controversy that was swirling around us. So Well, one story led to another, and I got my nose out the front door and said, hey, I have some concerns about this curricula. I'd like to talk about it to the school board and the local Christian radio station. Literally, a 500-watt station in a cornfield said, would you like to come on and talk about it? And I said, sure. What (laughs) what what year is that? Oh, golly. I would have to say the early 80s. Okay. Easily the early 80s. And when it was all done, the general manager of the store walked up to me and he said, hey, how'd you like your own daily talk show? And I went, Okay, because ignorance is bliss and didn't have a clue what kind of word it took. And I knew that I could get my kids out the door. When school started, the show would be at noon and I'd be back home before they came home. So I'd still be an at-home mom and my little world of fantasy that I'd created would be protected, (laughs) right? That was a two-year tutorial from the Lord. What I learned was radio was a whole lot more about listening than it is about talking. And that really, there's this huge chasm in what I like to call applied Christianity. We're amening on Sunday. We're yellow magic marking in our Bible. We've got all of our concordances on our notes. And Monday comes, and we're like deer in front of the headlights, and we don't have a clue how to apply the whole truth of the whole gospel to the whole world around us. Well, long story short, I started getting pulled into Concerned Women for America. They asked me to serve on their state right. board. Then Dr. Beverly Lee asked me to serve on the national board. And then she said, you know what? I want you to come to Washington and I'd like to groom you to be the next president. And so I turned to Craig and I said, "Um, not a feminist?" got this call. What do you think we should do? And Craig smiled and he said, well, you know, when the Lord calls a couple, he'll call them together. So let's just wait and see. Less than a week later, he gets a phone call from the Rutherford Institute, headed by John Whitehead, who said, Craig, I need you out here. I want you to do work for me on the East Coast. So Craig goes, okay, God doesn't have to shout. We got the message loud and clear. So we packed up over 30 years ago, moved to Washington, D.C., or as I lovingly call it, Babylon. Mm-hmm. And God just kept opening the doors for doing media. So I called, co- host for Beverly LaHaye. And then after being there for a while, I realized my passion was really intersecting with people vis-a-vis live media, which Mm -hmm. is radio, and got pushed in front of the camera all the time to represent a conservative worldview on national televised debates. And I have to tell you, I was a reluctant sheep by every stretch of the imagination. Let let, let me interrupt
1: you. Let me interrupt you because the number one word, and I know you hate hearing this, but Jana Partial is so articulate. Um, (laughs) Was that always who you, is that who you are from childhood on, or did you learn this?
0: I think that's a great question. I have to tell you in truth, I am really an introvert disguised as an extrovert. And I think, um, it really just goes to that idea, and I hate to sound all Sunday schoolish, but it's true that power of the verse that says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks." This kind of stuff is just fire in my bones, so it just comes out. But I learned real quickly, and I say this all the time on the air, we were so right when we were told you go through life with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And I got to tell you, if those are your two books, if you're taking the Bible and you're reading what the Word of God has to say to apply it to the world around you, then it just pours out of you because you can see with such clarity mm-hmm. stuff that's so murky to people who don't have the illumination of the Word of God. So, and and then I learned. I mean, you're always, always, always in God's classroom. And so, the first time I got pushed out in front of a camera, I learned that wait a minute, you know, just tell them what time it is. You don't have to tell them how the watch is made, as Nancy Reagan used to say to Ron Reagan all the time. And then you learn to be more concise. And then you learn, as a believer in Christ, what is the core issue. In fact, more to the point. What's the issue behind the issue? Mm -hmm. And really and truly, there's very little discussed in that marketplace of ideas that doesn't get tied back in one shape or form to the principles and precepts of scripture. There's either an ethical underpinning, a moral surrounding, a biblical truth. And if you can really dig into those core issues, I do what I do because I'm not trying to win over the favor of a party or a political candidate. I want to articulate God's truth in the marketplace of ideas. And there's so much excellent stuff there. Mm -hmm. And yet we're so reticent to be able to say it because I think we're so concerned about acceptance and being included and not marginalized and being loved and being affirmed that we're afraid to say, well, I'm just a messenger. Let me just tell you what he said. And to be able to say it in a winsome way through a grace narrative to a hurting culture. Mm -hmm. That hasn't changed and it won't change until Jesus calls us home.
1: What's been your greatest challenge in your own spiritual journey?
0: Wow. The trials of this life. Uh, when I was back in the Midwest, my brother was engaged to be married and they did a premarital blood test and they said, oh, you have leukemia. And we were stunned as a family. In fact, my brother at the time was a hugely successful trader at the Chicago Board of Trade. And when he came to my parents' house and found out that my brother, John, had been diagnosed, he stretched out across his bed and sobbed and sobbed Mm. and sobbed and said, oh, God, let it be me instead. Two weeks later, Charlie was playing golf, and he got this pull in his muscle, he thought. And they went, oh, you have lymphoma. So within two weeks, my two brothers, and I come from a family of three, me and my two brothers, within two weeks, both of my brothers had been diagnosed with cancer. That was stunning. There's a kind of numbness. But then 10 months later... My mother got sick and my dad and I said, you better check for cancer. And they said, no, no, no. Sure enough, she ends up having the exact same kind of cancer my first brother got. So within the expanse of 10 months, my three members of my family, my two brothers and my mom were diagnosed with cancer, treated at the University of Chicago, Northwestern University. And just for five years, it was in and out of oncology, radiation, surgery, up, down, up, down. And you asked about my spiritual life. So in the middle of all of that, I had to stop and say, okay, either God's in charge or he's not. Mm. This was probably some kind of genetic assault because they all got hit at the same time rather than the same age. So according to the brilliant minds down at the University of Chicago, they said that really means that probably there was some environmental impact that you were hit with. So my family and I thought, okay, what do I do? And I really remember saying to the Lord, well, I can't change my genes You knew all along that this was going to happen. You're sovereign. Nothing ever, ever, ever will happen to me that hasn't been vetted first in the throne room of heaven. So you're in charge, and I'm just going to trust you. Well, praise be to God, two of the three recovered. After five years, my brother Charlie lost his life to cancer. That was just the beginning. Then we've got, oh, let's see, a son who ends up getting Mm -hmm. spinal meningitis. And I remember the doctor walking into the hospital, squeezing his toes, saying, Wow, a girl just died in Alexandria, Virginia last night, so I hope you make it. F minus in bedside manner. But thanks be to God to the local church, anointed Sam with oil, prayed over him. He recovered. Went on for several years until he was shot in the head by a friend who said, let me show you my gun. And I said, wait a minute, let me show you my gun. And he said he was just playing around with it. The bullet literally goes into Sam's head and does, and asked me if I believe in miracles, Mm. a U-turn. It was a forty-five. I remember talking to Ollie North about this. And he said, Janet, forty-fives don't do U-turns. I said, well, they do if God puts his hand in his brain and says, not now. This was the weekend after the big Promise Keepers event in D.C. And Craig had gone with our two sons. Literally, it was a U-turn. So Sammy struggled. I mean, he couldn't see, he couldn't hear. The doctor said, hey, you know, we don't know what's going to happen as a result of this. 18 months later, the guy goes back to school, gets his master's degree, gets married, has three kids, and then he gets cancer. And then Sammy struggles with cancer for five years, and seven years ago, we just passed the anniversary, Mm -hmm. he lost his life. Mm -hmm. He lost his life as a result of the combination of the gunshot wound, because his brain had been really damaged, Mm -hmm. and the chemotherapy that they used. So all of that's to say, wow, biggest challenge? The biggest challenge has been to stand in front of the dead body of your child and say, either Jesus is real, Mm -hmm. and he conquered death, or everything I've ever believed Mm -hmm. is a sham. And I stood and looked at the dead body of my son and went, I know exactly where he's at. This is a long goodbye. This is not a forever separation. Mm -hmm. And Christ conquered this ugly Mm -hmm. experience known as death. Mm -hmm. So all of these trials, I wouldn't sign up for any of them, but I have to tell you that every one of them was a way of just going, remember when you made that decision when you were six? Affirmed, 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 Mm -hmm. affirmed. So nobody signs up for this. Uh, You know, this is not the happy, happy, joy, joy club, but I have to tell you, you go into that refiner's fire, and it's a funny way of knocking off all that stuff that doesn't matter and giving you crystal clarity about really what matters most in your life. So that's the biggest challenge is to say, okay, you told me that you loved me, says my Heavenly Father. Do you trust me? And all of those experiences have had me really go down on my knees and say, I can't see your hand, but I trust your heart. I trust you completely.
1: I think of Peter's you know, comment when The larger group of disciples have left Christ because things have gotten hard, and Jesus looks at them, and I think it's one of the most unique, intimate things he says. He says, do you want to go leave me too? And I Hmm. think it's a little bit of a tip of the, you know, this is incarnation. This is the God-man saying, are you going to leave me? Yes. And on their side, Peter says, where else would we go? You alone have words of life. Hmm. And it's only those fulcrums, right? I mean, and thanks for sharing the story about Sam. I know you and Craig don't talk about that a lot. We don't. And right. I really, and of course, I respect that. But I appreciate you sharing that. And it is those fulcrum times. Either Christianity's real or it isn't. Yeah. When life's easy, exactly. it doesn't matter, right?
0: <laughs> well, what does C.S. Lewis say about pain? Right. That's where he shouts to us. It's yeah. God's megaphone, and it's. It's absolutely true, but it's where the metal gets tested. You know, it's real easy to put on that happy sweater mm-hmm. and praise and worship songs and the bumper sticker on your car, but where the metal is really tested is when it all falls apart. And mm-hmm. then you go back and you read what it says in 1 Peter, not if, when fiery trials mm-hmm. come. And, you know, oh, I have really thought about that a lot. I love to do interviews on the persecuted church. And I think it's because the dichotomy between what we call the Western church and the rest of the church is really self-evident in this issue of suffering. You come to faith in Christ in Vietnam or Nigeria or communist China, and it's the whole package, again, to harken back to Lewis. Suffering is a part of the deal. It happens in the United States here, and we all grab the smelling salts and we faint because we have some tribulation in our life. And yet it's a written guarantee, and I love to say it's better than the warranty I got with my washer and dryer. And yet when it comes, we're just stupefied. It's like, I don't get this. I came to faith in Christ and should all be terrific. Uh, No. Actually, it's probably going to be the antithesis. So suit up and get up and get ready to understand what it means to join in the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, what a politically incorrect topic in mm-hmm. a sensate church. And I think that's one of our challenges today.
1: I talked to Johnny Erickson, Todd, often about that phrase. I go, Will you explain to me the fellowship of suffering? There's no joy in this stinking suffering exactly. thing. <laughs> what, this exactly fellowship, right. Coffee and donuts and suffering. No, I don't. we got that all wrong. But I, I'm still stuck on your happy sweater. I don't have one of the so anyway, uh, let's, okay, let's go on here. Do you have, and I know this is kind of a kitschy question, but I've been impressed by folks who've, who have good answers for it. A key verse or a favorite book in the scripture?
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh, Hebrews 12, one through three has been my life verse. And mm. maybe it's because my dad was a football coach and an athletic director, and I just love the athleticism of scripture. So I love the idea of running with perseverance, since we're surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, Mm -hmm. throwing off that sin that so easily entangles running with perseverance. Some translations say Mm -hmm. zeal. I love that. There's a commitment to this, that race that's been set before us. And then it tells us the only way we do that effectively is by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Mm -hmm. There is so much in the world today that says, and look over here, look over here, look over here keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, Mm -hmm. who for the joy set before him endured the cross, right? And then continues to say to us that if we do that successfully, what do we do? We will not grow weary Weary in Mm well-doing. There is a mandate for perseverance and consistency and staying power in the Christian faith. And when we live in a world that gives me instant cash an instant divorce and instant popcorn, the idea of persevering, of laboring, I think is just a concept we don't understand. Craig and I are working our way through Second Corinthians right now, and we so enjoy reading Paul. I, I can't wait to meet him. His strength, knowing when he would be humble, but when he would also be forceful. But he would also talk about the idea that we really need to understand whose we are in the staying power. Mm -hmm. But Paul would write these letters and sometimes it'd be a year and a half he'd be in a place or three years he'd be in a place. And oh, all I get out of that is two letters. I want so much more. (laughs) What was he doing all those years? What was he observing? What was he seeing? The staying power for a guy who didn't have a home address, a spouse or a family, and yet he stayed because he was totally sold Mm. out, running with perseverance. I just love that.
1: Well, and I'm always struck with Ananias, who gets the message to go uh, remove the scales from Paul's eyes metaphorically, and he's, you yes. know, the dialogue between the Lord and him. Do you know about this man? <laughs> yeah, you know, Go. He's a chosen servant of mine, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And I often share that going, if you signed up for Christianity because of a Western idea of prosperity and health and wealth, I got news for you. Look at Paul's commission. And none of us are running to sign up and say, okay, I'll suffer for Christ's sake. It's a different paradigm. But, okay, let's go on here. Number four, after the Scripture, what two, three books have been particularly uh, impactful to you?
0: Hmm. First and foremost, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. When the kids were little, we would use that as a devotional. We found this fabulous illustrated version in modern English. The old English is a little heavy for kids, but... Their eyes lit up. They were as big as saucers. They sat on the edge of their bed. They couldn't wait for the next chapter. There's just something about Bunyan's allegory about that moment where that backpack of sin gets thrown off. And then you persevere and you you have the roadmap, the Bible, you find comfort in house beautiful, you slip into the slow of despond, you take you're taken captive by giant despair who's held in Doubting Castle. And then really the whole genesis of the broadcast I do comes from the fact that at one point in this story, Christian, who's the main character in the book and his companion at the time is a fellow by the name of Faithful, and they must needs pass through Vanity Fair. That's a fabulous name for the marketplace of ideas. In fact, There was a magazine for years that was called Vanity Fair that was sort of a gossip magazine built on this idea that it was the marketplace of ideas. So just like us, they weren't real wild about having to show up at this place. And the people who were in the marketplace weren't particularly crazy about Christian and faithful. In fact, they saw that they were outsiders and Christian and faithful knew that they were going to be ridiculed and marginalized, pulled Bunyan rights, their colors up around their face. And the merchants started shouting at them, yelling, buy, buy, buy. Well, that's the world telling us to buy all the artificial ideas that are out there. Colossians talks about this in Colossians 2, eight to be careful that you're not taken captive by vain and hollow philosophies predicated on this world rather than on the word of God. That's what the world is selling in the marketplace of ideas, vain and hollow philosophies. But Bunyan's response vis-a-vis Christian and faithful is brilliant and it's profound. Their response simply is, we only buy the truth. There's two presuppositions in that. Number one is they knew the difference between a false idea and one that was grounded in absolute truth, transcendent, knowable, absolute. So they had learned to discern between those two. That's a mandate for the church now and forever. It's why our call to be a Berean is so important, particularly now in a post-truth world But the second part of that presupposition is if you buy the truth, somebody else is in that marketplace who knows absolute truth. So for those of you who think that you can step out of cultural engagement, just imagine what Vanity Fair would be like if no one was there with the truth. Now it doesn't mean that you're not going to rub shoulders with, and I love Bunyan's words, mountbacks and rogues and thieves. That's all the definition of the world. But somebody was there to be able to say, listen, pilgrims are going to walk through this city, this marketplace of ideas. And when they come, are you prepared to engage them with the truth? Mm -hmm. So that book was profound for me. And of course, it ends eventually after Bunyan has his character go through all of these experiences. He crosses over to the celestial city and you can't read it without getting a lump in your throat and a tear in your eye because he writes, and a great shout went up as he was welcomed home. So, it's all of us. All of us who follow Christ have that moment where that backpack falls off, and somewhere in that journey is where we are today, written in the 1600s. It's as apropos today as it was when he wrote it in a dungeon in England, because he wouldn't stop proclaiming the truth of Christ. So, I love it. Once upon a time in secular campuses, it was read as part of your English lit class. It was that profound piece. It is to this day deemed to be the second most published book in huh. publishing history, second only to the Word of God. So it's huge, and it should be required reading for every Christian to understand that journey. Bunyan has what we have, his knowledge of the Word and his knowledge of the world. And he knew how to apply the Word to the world, which is exactly what we're mm-hmm. supposed to do.
1: Yeah, I wonder if the—I is. I think it was late 80s movie, The Mission— with, oh, uh, yes oh, I wonder my. in that scene if that's where they got the idea of cutting the backpack off because he's you know he's collected all the um, armor in sort of his attempt to pay for his sin. And it takes the native who he has been persecuting and, yes. uh, and mercenaries, taking his slaves to cut it loose. It's such a visual. But, okay, that's one. Oh, no, my uh,
0: gosh. I have to tell you, we, you must have been watching the movie with Craig and me because we turned each other. It's Robert De Niro, and he's going up this hill, and yep. it's this hard press. And when he finally throws that backpack off, we looked at each other, and we went, Pilgrim's Progress. Yep. I mean, the fact that it's a backpack, I'm thinking, did you write that, using that as a way of showing the shedding of your sins? Yeah. Because it's so powerful. Wow. And, and no great. one,
1: and he couldn't do it for himself. You know, the Indian whom he was uh, enslaving was the one who did, yeah. It's powerful exactly right. scene. Okay, uh, that's one. I said a couple of books, two, three.
0: Well, then I would say the next two are tied. One would be A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van huh. Alken. And I think it's because, and when I read it, I didn't have half the trials and tribulations I'd gone through. So I almost wonder if God was having me read that story of a man who you lost his You shouldn't have wife. read that book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it was how do you deal with the greatest loss you could possibly imagine, right? What's The biggest fear that every human being has is death. And when it happens, how do you cope, right? There's all kinds of books written about it. In fact, I just saw a documentary about Joan Didion, who wrote the book, The Year of Magical Thinking. And she writes about losing her husband unexpectedly. And then the second one, I think, is called Blue Nights. And that's when she shortly after that lost her daughter. Now, she's an agnostic. And it's like, how do you deal with death if Jesus isn't standing next to you at the graveside? You write in a nihilistic fashion where there's never any resolution and it's nothingness. In fact, she's famous for saying, no one will mourn me when I'm gone because I'm the last one. Mm. And I thought, what a, I wanted to grab her around the neck. She's in her late 80s right now. And she actually got a Medal of Freedom Award from President Obama. And I thought, no, 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 no. There's so much more. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? So reading Van Alken's trail to go through the same thing with Lewis, when you read about losing his wife, Joy, this idea of if this is the worst that can happen to us, so we think. The worst thing is being separated eternally from christ but from our mortals perspective we think the worst thing is death and losing that who is dearest to us how do we persevere so Mm -hmm. i praise god in retrospect that i think god was using that as a primer and the other it carkens back i think to my hebrews 12 which is fox's book of martyrs and i love the way voice of the martyrs keeps updating that all the time by adding martyrs new from the 20th and 21st century those are my heroes. Those are my heroes. Could I have done what they did? Could I, Mm -hmm. like Anne Eskew, on my way to the tower, and I wouldn't betray Catherine Parr, who's the last wife of Henry VIII, but she was an evangelical Christian who printed pamphlets about the gospel, and Henry said, don't do that, and she said, okay, and so being very in tune with scripture, she said, I won't push back. Henry dies, boom. She goes right back to publishing those pamphlets, and really moved evangelicalism forward in a very rapid fashion, but during those tumultuous days of the Tudor court, Eskew was really asked to sort of rat out Catherine and she wouldn't do it. She was tortured to the point where they put her on the rack and all four of the joints, the hips and the arms, when they racked you, they pulled you until mm-hmm. all of those popped. They literally had to carry her to the stake in a chair because of the way in which her muscles had been torn and she couldn't do it. And yet she went and never denied Christ and was smiling on her way to the fire that was going to snuff out her life. And those aren't fairy tales. Those are real stories. And I'm telling you, I just angst over whether or not I would be able to do that. And then immediately I have that thought. It's the Corey ten Boom story about her daddy saying, when do you get the ticket for the train? You get it just before you get on the train. So his grace would be sufficient if you and I were called to do something like that. But I want to be prepared to be found faithful whatever life throws Mm -hmm. at us. And I I watch the shadow going across the United States where Christians are being marginalized. We're being told we should be deprogrammed. Bill Maher on his television program just recently said that what happened on January 6th at the Capitol is a direct result of those Christians. Read the book of Revelation, he says, as an atheist not knowing a thing about God's word, read the book of Revelation. This is their, what did he call it? He called it a spiritual initiative or faith-based initiative. That was it. Their faith based initiative was to storm the Capitol. I don't even want to unpack that. It's so skewed and it's thinking, but where do you think this is going? It's going against those of us who carry this imperishable message that is known as the offense of the cross. So if I were to say they're coming after us, what's your response? Mm Fear? Fear? faith. So that's what I'm saying. These are the times where I think we're being told, grow up, get off milk, get into meat, and start getting some spiritual heft in your life, because you're going to need it.
1: You know, interesting, you bring up the milk and meat. I'm doing this, I've never done this before. I'm teaching one book of the Bible every Sunday, and it's been uh, trying to say, okay, people that aren't in the Word, they don't read Scripture, not just date, time, author, purpose, but What's sort of the gist of this? What's maybe a passage that is important? And it's been very interesting for me to step back and say, what do folks need? So when I teach verses like Corinthians, I use the word corrective. When you mm. read these books, Paul is correcting all the things they're doing wrong. And he talks about, I could not give you meat to eat even now. <laughs> and I think most people miss it. What Paul's just said is, everything I'm telling you in 1 Corinthians is a bowl of milk. <laughs> And you think of all the issues that he addresses. You don't understand this stuff? How can I give you meat if you don't understand divorce and remarriage? If you don't understand sexual sin in the church? If you don't understand, you know, and this is pablum, guys, and you're dealing with this? How can I give you meat? So interesting you would use that term. Wow. Sorry for the digression. Okay.
0: No, it's fascinating. (laughs) Uh, See, I wish you were still my pastor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Number five, what is one of the biggest lessons you've learned? at this point in life
0: wow again i think i go back to the sports analysis and that is i've learned to travel light i had no idea as a midwest kid that the lord would call us to washington dc Well, not in my wildest dreams so i want to be able to pack up and move quickly craig wrote in the margin of his bible the verse where god calls abraham out of his father's house he literally predated it by 10 years before God would literally call us out of his father's house. We lived in the house Craig grew up in, back in Wisconsin. And I had no idea. But if you're so tied to this earth with possessions or your own personal goals, rather than emptying yourself of you and saying, okay, where do you want me, coach? Where do you want me to play now? If you don't travel light, I think it's an encumbrance to our obedience. And I want to say yes, Lord, without hesitation. I remember, it was so funny, years ago, Cliff Barrels' daughter, Bonnie Barrels was going to the same church that I did. And she was absolutely insistent that when she called her boys, she had all boys, that they had to come the very first time she called him. And I said, wow, you're really strong on this. She said, why? She said, because I want my boys to say yes, Lord, the first time he calls them. And I've never, ever forgotten that lesson. And I thought, travelite, you got to let go and you got to be prepared. The second is this idea of playing Bill Belichick as a whiteboard. And before the team goes out, there are 10 points that they have to read. And one of them, that really resonates with me is play situational football. I love that because if it means, okay, you're the offensive line, the defensive line has just shifted. You have to change the play. You have to be aware of what's going on around you to be able to know whether or not you have to change the play. I think that as a general rule for life is that you have to be situationally aware of what's going around. But I also think being situationally aware means I am so in tune with the person of the Holy Spirit that if I need to shift here, close my mouth here, talk to that person when I don't feel like it here, that I am more obedient and I'm really in tune if I'm willing to say, I want to have a situational relationship with the Holy Spirit. And again, by that, I mean just playing light and fast so I'm responsive to what the holy spirit tells me to do we get so bound up in me that we don't hear very well and we live in a cacophony of noise where it's just constantly blather all around us and so that ancient discipline of silence which the ancients practice is not something we do i know that's paradoxical as you and i are talking into microphones but that idea of being quiet and just listening you know it was interesting i remember talking to the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. And he's a great, as we both know, a great man of prayer. And he told me that he gets down on his knees in his office and he shuts the door. And he says, the first thing he says is, Lord, talk to me. And Mm. he doesn't say a word. And he just waits to see how the Lord talks. These great lessons you learn from fellow pilgrims. And that was a takeaway for me where I thought, just listen, don't come with your list, be quiet, be still, and know that he is God. So. I think that's probably something that I've learned, that idea of just clearing away, cutting away the clutter, the noise, the baggage, so that you're more responsive and you're more in tune.
1: So let's digress from just talking about your answers to these. How would you exhort, encourage, help folks? They're nowhere even near what you've just said, Janet. That They maybe have a longing for it, but they're not there.
0: Well, you know, the challenge here is not to sound so Sunday schoolish. I mean, if we're being really transparent with each other,
1: I, <laughs> I hope so. I, well,
0: <laughs> but you know, I don't want it to be a Day Spring card, you know, or a Thank happy you. little Thank slap you. on message. Where and I loathe what we sometimes view as formulaic Christianity. If you do these three things, ta-da! you sure. win the prize, you know, and it ain't that easy. It's much harder than that. It is moment by moment, a step forward, a step back, success, failure, forgiveness, repentance, starting all over again. It is so 24 hours. I just absolutely am passionate about Paul's Acts 17. That's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and maybe it's because I'm here in Washington, but I love the fact that he borrows these pagan words from a pagan poet and says, in him we live and move and have our our being." being. If that doesn't mean living to the outside, right to the edge of my skin of who I am, every thought gets bound up in him, and every decision gets pushed through the grid of, does this honor him? Is this within the purview of his will? And again, let me just hit the pause button here. Not because I fear him. Anybody who thinks God is a cosmic killjoy who plays whack-a-mole when we sin doesn't mm-hmm. understand that when the Bible says that God is love, it is almost an incomprehensible concept. I do what I do. I think what I think. I strive to be conformed and transformed to the image of Christ because I love him. Not because I have to, but because I want to, and if you start with the idea, in fact, here's what I'd say to my friends. If you struggle in this area, do a word study just on God's love in the scripture. Fall in love with him. Learn to recognize the width and depth and breadth of a love from which you can never be separated from. I ended with a proposition, bad English, but you get my point. The Mm -hmm. bottom line is, if we can start to comprehend this almost the incomprehensible, the overpowering love of God. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he's omnipotent. All of those other characteristics. But I start with the concept that God so loved. And if I can do that, it's a catalyst. I do what I do for my husband because I'm wildly, madly, deeply, crazily in love with him. How much more for a God who knows my every thought, who sent his son to die for me, who knows the numbers of hairs on my head, who knit me together in my mother's womb, who has all my days laid out for me, and now has my name written in his book, and I will behold him face to face. Mm -hmm. You do what you do because you love him, and that's where you start. We get so bound up in dogma and ritual that we forget the person of Jesus Christ. So, you know, again, going back to that, I don't want it to sound too Sunday schoolish, but, you know, you got to get in the word. If my husband were in World War II and he was overseas, you can bet I'd not walk. I'd run to the mailbox, and I'd grab every one mm-hmm. of those letters, and I would read it not once, but 20 times. And I'd pore over everything that was written there because I loved him, and I couldn't wait to be mm-hmm. with him.
1: Mm-hmm. That's my
0: relationship with Christ. I love him. I can't wait to be with him. And he sent me 66 love letters, Dear Janet, in
1: yeah. the beginning. What is the one thing? And this may be, you may have answered this. You'd long for every believer to know, to do, to live.
0: Wow. And this is paradoxical, particularly being in Washington, D.C. But I have to tell you, I am so impacted by the fact that people are hurting. First Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. There, everybody has a story. Everybody's got a pain. And we're such a non-transparent culture. We do this even in the church. We do it in the world even more, by the way. But I think if we start with the understanding that people are hurting, that might move us to something that I think the Lord is trying to work on in my life right now, which is I am so impressed, so moved to tears every time in the New Testament I read, and Jesus had compassion on them. Mm -hmm. That undescribed look where Peter betrays Jesus and the Bible says, and he looked at him, I'm frustrated, but I love the fact that I have to wait until I'm at his feet for him to say, tell me about that look, but I'm guessing that that look was, I know, I know, Peter, but I still love you. I have compassion. I knew you would do this, but I still love you. And you know what? You're going to end up losing your life for me. Mm. I still love you. So that idea of starting with people being in pain might help us to pull back a little bit, dial down a little bit and understand that whatever's coming out of their mouth, there's always a story. There's a deeper pain there. And I think that if we could start to see the image of God in people who are not like us, who don't hold our opinion, that Imago Dei, that that concept that the fingerprints of my heavenly father are right there in the face of my fellow man, that would so impact... Just think how many societal ills would be eradicated if we moved on that. The idea of abortion, the idea of racism, all of those, the idea of alienation of affections where we worship the creation more than the creator. That whole Imago Day comes from the idea that the only part of creation that was made in his image is you and me. That is the linchpin in my whole perspective toward creation stewardship. Any policy put forward that doesn't take care of my fellow man first is not a policy I'm interested in endorsing. So it is the... The grid through which so much of what I think we need to push our ideas through. People are hurting. They're made in the image of God. Everybody has a story. So tell people about Jesus. I got to tell you, this is one of my frustrations. I don't understand that idea of going and telling is not a spiritual gift that only a few people were given. It is a universal mandate to the people who are the sons and daughters of a Most High King. And as we move deeper into, we're beyond postmodernism, we're beyond post Christianity, we are in post truth, where feelings override absolute knowable mm-hmm. truth. And as a result of that, we're deathly afraid to tell somebody about Jesus. And yet, I don't know if there's ever been a greater time in world history, let alone US history, where the hue and cry coming from the culture is louder and more succinct than it's ever been. Is God real? and can I know him personally, and does he love me? We have the answer, and we're cracked earthen vessels, not the way I would do it, but this is God's economy, and he pours into our lives this imperishable message. Wouldn't you pour it into Royal Dalton, or porcelain, or spode China, something that was exquisite and highly valued? Nope. He puts it in a cracked pot who's going to make a mistake, who's going to stumble all over their feet, who's not going to have the right answer at the right time, but the issue is go and tell hurting people need to know that Jesus cares and he knows and he loves them. And I don't get it. Honestly, there's a reticence that I just can't quite comprehend. And I'm looking at my watch and I'm thinking, you know, I see a lot of signs out there. I don't know when he's coming, but you know, it could be any day now. Mm -hmm. So why would I be so slow to tell somebody about Jesus? And I think the last thing is the living part of this as a Christian is that idea of preaching. If you must use words, if you never opened your mouth, Could people see Jesus in you? And if they can't, then what do I need to do to change the way I'm living so that they can see authentic Christianity? I think that's just, I live in a town, you know this town inside out better than I do. We live in a town where ego is the number one fuel source. You know, I want my name on the magazine. I want to be the guest on the Sunday morning talk show. I want to have the special seat at the restaurant. Me, 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 me. But do we live a life where people go, there's something unique and distinctive that Mm -hmm. are we the living epistles? Love that phrase out of scripture. I'm a book. What are they reading? Can they see Jesus in the pages Mm -hmm, of my life? mm -hmm,
1: Excellent. All right, seven, your greatest disappointment in your context of ministry, vocation, community, whatever.
0: Hmm. Oh, this is hard. Well, first of all, I disappoint myself all the time. So I just have to put that out there. I look in the mirror, and I go to bed, and I say, Father— I thank you for your limitless patience. I thank you that you just don't say, I've had it, you're grounded forever, you know, sit down. (laughs) This is the gospel truth. I have said to the Lord so many times, again, my dad is a coach, Lord, don't bench me. Please don't bench me. Let me play. Just keep me on the field. Uh, And there are so many times when I'm thinking, I fumbled, you know, I did everything wrong. And yet he says, you can still play for me. I love you. I've got you on the field.
1: You know, I inject there, you know, people say about preaching, what's your favorite sermon? I go, none of them. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, after I preach that sucker, I'm fetal. I'm sucking my thumb going, dear Jesus, forgive me for all I said.
0: Exactly. Oh, so true. So very, very true. So believe me, that idea of pointing fingers, remember you got four fingers pointing back at you. But if I can just share some observances that I think I'm concerned about, the world is doing exactly what the world is supposed to do. And it's sin sick, fallen upside down. Good is called evil. Evil is called good. Men are doing what's right in their own eyes. I get it. That's what a post-identic world looks like. Without Jesus, it's exactly what it's supposed to look like. So my concern is the church. And I've sat in front of a microphone now for, golly, over 35 years. There are patterns that if we don't break, we're in trouble. First of all, we are terribly tribal as Christians. We huddle in our own denominations as though the Bible says that nothing about being in heaven and the Presbyterians are going to sit here and the Methodists are going to sit here and the Baptists are going to sit here. It is under the shibboleth, I love that old-fashioned word, the banner of Christ Jesus that we're going to sit. And I don't mean blurring ecumenicalism where we're sloppy in our doctrine. None of that whatsoever but do we major in the minors sometimes? Do we know orthodoxy in our worldview? Do we know what we believe and why we believe it? And are you going to shun that person because they happen to be a cessationist and you're not, because you're a pre-trib and they're not? Can we draw the differences between the majors and the minors and find unity under the name of Jesus Christ so that we can be a stronger, better, healthier witness to a watching world? That bothers me. Number two, I am stunned at biblical illiteracy. And again, I say Mm -hmm. that standing in a mirror, me first, I want to make that perfectly clear, but how in the world can we contend, I love that word in the book of Jude, for the faith, if we don't know what we believe and why we believe it, and so how much of what we think is biblical truth is tradition, or it's dogma, or it's cultural, but it has absolutely nothing to do with scripture, so I'm going back to Colossians again, welcome to the war. You are gonna be taken as a prisoner of war if you're not in the word of God. Taken captive, the Bible says. I love that phrase by vain and hollow philosophies. The only way you're not gonna become a prisoner of war is if you're suited up and you're read up and you're in the word of God to know exactly what it says. So again, sounds really pablum, formulaic, but there are some truths that are non-negotiable in the word. Mm -hmm. the other thing that bothers me (laughs) And I think you and I know this because of our tenure in Washington, D.C. There are more PhDs per capita in D.C. than any other city in America. But we are not critical thinkers as believers. We've posited to a watching world the concept that it's either faith or reason, but that the two are mutually exclusive. Mm. That's why The Washington Post says we're poor and educated and easy to command. For the record, they did retract that eventually, but they said it. And quite frankly, I think it's because sometimes we give them a lot of material to work with, (laughs) that somehow you cannot believe that you are a critical thinker. And you've come to faith in Christ, you know, they're not mutually exclusive and I think that if we can give a reasoned argument for what we believe, especially in a post truth world that's becoming more not less important so I would challenge my brothers and sisters, you can't think great thoughts if you don't read great books, read the classics, read Les Miserables, realize why that was the novel of the 19th century. The whole book is about the idea of redemption. It was built on a biblical theme. Why is A Christmas Carol such a moving story? Because it's a story Mm -hmm. of redemption. Why is the Brothers Karamazov so important? Because it's the story of good and evil and death and what happens when you die. I mean, these are all ideas that screen the themes we read in scripture, not to to supplant the word of God, but to come alongside and to help us think. So Francis Schaefer said it years ago. He talked about what he called pre-evangelism, where you started on the outside of the culture and you worked your way in. So I want to talk arts, I want to talk movie, I want to know what the tribes are believing and thinking in my transcultural missionary experience before I go out into the world. I want to know what they're thinking and believing, not because I subscribe to it, but if Paul, here's our example. Walked around in Athens, Bible historians think for about a year and a half before he gave that speech at the Areopagus. A year and a half, a saying in his day was, There are more gods in Athens than there are men. This guy was doing his homework. He was situationally aware. He was paying attention to what was happening in the culture. He was ready to talk to the Epicureans and the Stoics, the smarty pants of their day, the philosophers of his day. And he was ready and able to get up and to give his discourse on Mars Hill. Why should that be any different than us? I want to hear what the culture is saying. Not because I believe it. Paul didn't subscribe to an Epicurean worldview, but he knew what they believed, and he was able to fill in the gaps. I hear what you're saying, he says, because he did his homework. And that's another point. We don't do our homework. I think we're afraid to commit to really studying and preparing. Whatever your vocation is, that's how you put bread on the table. You're calling is as the son or the daughter of a Most High King to tell people about Jesus. Everything else are the rudimentary aspects of being able to do step number one, which is to tell people about Jesus. So our priorities are messed up. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's part of our problem. And that takes me to my last point, which is... I'm so frustrated that as a church, we still struggle with what is euphemistically referred to as cultural engagement. Mm -hmm. I hear this all the time. I'm called to just evangelize. The paradox in that is we don't even do that, but that's the excuse. So my question would be this, exactly how does one evangelize without... Being culturally engaged. Unless you're going to put the four spiritual laws on a paper airplane and throw it over the backyard fence, you have to intersect with people culturally engaged to be able to share the gospel. So if everybody's talking about something that's hot in the marketplace of ideas right now, can you meet someone there and say, tell me why you believe this? Tell me what you're thinking. I'd love to hear more and be a better listener than you are a talker and hear the question behind the question and don't be combative and stop and realize that the work is the work of the Holy Spirit. You're a messenger. Just deliver the message in love, not an either or, not a multiplicity of tests here. It's not truth or love. It's two in equal measure. Sometimes we'll do great. Sometimes we'll fall on our face and God will redeem all of that. We never know what seeds are being planted, but go. Go and love people and go and tell people about Jesus.
1: Amen, amen. All right, let's go to on the other side of it then. What's your greatest encouragement as you look in your context of ministry, vocation, Christian community, and so forth?
0: Mm. You know, I get asked a lot, who are your favorite people to interview? And you know how this works. Being in Washington, you think, oh, well, I talked to a prime minister. I interviewed a prince. I talked to a president. And you think it's all the A-listers. And in truth, it's not. The great encouragement for me is talking to people who go right back to what Paul was writing about to the church at Corinth, and such were some of you. So I love talking to the ex-mafia members, the ex-KKK members, the ex-drug addicts, the ex-homosexuals, the people who can say, and such were some of us. Mm-hmm. I love the stories of redemption because for me personally, it's just like affirm again and again again. And again, the power of the gospel, the message of the cross. He did that for you. Wow, he did that for me. And knowing that when people are listening, they can go, but you don't know who, it doesn't make any difference. He did it for you. And he loves you, and he paid the price for you. So the biggest encouragement for me is Lo, these many years of sitting in front of a microphone, hearing no deviations, no altercations, no amendments, no changes whatsoever to the message that redemption is available to all if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I love platforming the story of a person who said, "Let me tell you who I was. It's the Samaritan woman. Oh, let me tell you about the man I met. He just told me every." Everything I've ever done, I love those kinds of stories Mm -hmm. because even with her background, he loved her and sent her on her way. If he can do that for her, if he can do it for the Mm ex-KKK member, if he can do it for the ex-Mafia member, he can do it for you and Mm -hmm.
1: me. Our friend at the C.S. Lewis Institute was a former KKK guy, right?
0: I interviewed him. What a powerful testimony. Oh, my goodness. Yes.
1: Great, great story. You know, I often say, again, I digress here, but you can't argue with a changed life. And when yes. when someone has been a certain way, and Christ interrupts their life and they're changed, it's you know I don't care what your pedigree, or your PhD, or your BA or high school graduate, a changed life is tough to argue with. You know. So, all right, if you could write your 18 year old self a letter, what advice would you tell a young Janet?
0: Well, 18 is particularly significant for me because I came to faith in Christ, as I said, when I was little. But I fell madly, wildly, deeply in love with this creative, brilliant, hysterically, wonderfully handsome guy, but he wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, I knew all the bells and whistles. Don't go there. <laughs> and I thought, oh, but Lord. So I prayed and prayed and prayed all when I was 17 and when I was 18. Lord, just take this away. If you don't want me to have anything to do with this fella, then Lord, I just ask you to take that desire away because I I don't want second best. I want your best. If you don't want me to have him, I don't want him. But Lord, I do pray for his salvation. Well, (laughs) <laughs> because it really is a funny story, because I was not going to date a guy who was not a follower of Jesus Christ, because I knew that that would be, you know, it would be a miserable contract. It'd be this Faustian deal where, <laughs> did you like what you got? You chose wrong, right? So Not I, so much. <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly. So this guy, Craig, was brilliant. And he was a kid who, at 17 and 18, was reading Jean-Paul Sartre and Frederick Nietzsche. In truth, I didn't realize it at the time, but it's because the guy was searching, right? So he was digging into all this stuff, and I'm reading the four spiritual laws, right? And that's what I knew. And so we wouldn't date. Good Bible church kid, right? I took it right to the edge. And so I said, we won't date, but we can talk. So I would not allow him in my house. This is the absolute truth. Love <laughs> but he could sit on the front porch, okay? But he couldn't go in the house. How's that for being absolutely legalistic? We're on the front porch, but we're not dating. You're not in my house. So There's no
1: binding involved here. <laughs> That's exactly right.
0: So he would sit and he would go on and on and on. And I'm telling you, my eyes would glaze over because I'm just kind of like this naive, happy Bible church kid. And I just love Jesus and was raised in a Christian home. And it was wonderful. And he's the first person in the world that starts poking my apologetic, which clearly was made out of jello at that time. And so he would tell me these things. And I kept thinking, I got to find somebody smart to be able to talk to him. So My mother, bless her precious heart, was a ferocious reader, and she had everything that Lewis had ever written. And so I pulled down a copy of Mere Christianity, and I gave it to him because I thought that's about the smartest Christian I know at the Mm -hmm. time. So I said, why don't you read this? He gobbled it up, and he said, you got any more? And I gave him every single Lewis book I had, and he read every single book we had. And then, this is the 60s, he came up to me and he said, okay, I get it. I'll believe in this Jesus of yours if I can talk to somebody who's communicated with the dead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is the absolute truth. I'm not <laughs> embellishing any of this. And I thought, oy ve. now what do I do? He wants to talk to somebody who's communicating with the dead. Well, what he didn't know is that in my town, there was a base for New Tribes Bible Institute. My whole life has grown up with these MKs. Oh, I'd go up to the barracks on Friday nights. I'd sit cross-legged on the floor. They'd share all these stories about going into dark tribes and sharing the light of the world and talking to shaman who became followers of Jesus Christ. And in my little Mickey Mouse brain, I'm going, okay, the occult shaman, dark tribes, talking to the dead, I bet they would be able to help. I said, so why don't you go on up to new tribes? I bet they'd be able to ask you. Without telling me, he drives up to the school, swings open the door, poor kid, grabs the first student he can find and he goes, hey, I want to talk to somebody about talking to the dead. And this kid goes, uh, ah, just a minute. And so they go to get the head of the Bible school who had just gone to take a nap. Thank you forever, Father, that he got up out of his nap. And he went downstairs and he sat in the lobby and Craig just went blah. And he asked every question he could. And when he was all said and done, this precious, godly missionary said, so Craig, I have a question for you. And Craig said, "Okay, shoot. He goes, where are you going to go when you die? Uh. And Craig just was stupefied. He realized that Nietzsche didn't have the answer. And Jean-Paul Sartre didn't have the answer. They believed in nothingness and nihilism and there was nothing and you were food for worms. And so he realized he didn't have the answer. So right there in his beautiful straightforward way this missionary bob kaminsky he's gone home to be with the lord i love this man dearly shared the gospel craig accepted christ as a savior in the lobby of the school gets in his car driveway this also is not an embellishment so bob gets on the phone and he calls me and he goes janet keep your mouth closed he said if which is always a challenge and he Uh said keep your mouth closed if this is true Craig will tell you, do not hammer him, let him wait and see if he shared with you to absolutely affirm the reality of the decision he made. So it's front step night and I'm walking back and forth and I can't wait for him to show up. And he shows up and I said, Hey, what's new? And he looked at me and he said, I just got saved. And so that was the beginning of our relationship. And so my letter to my 18 year old self is wait, Mm -hmm. trust God. I am now closer to glory than I've ever been before. And I have to tell you, there are two things that I have never questioned in my entire life. One is my salvation in Jesus Christ. I'm one of those people, and I praise God that I've never had a crisis of faith. I've never questioned my salvation. That is a gift from the Lord, and I thank him for it. The second, mm-hmm. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I married a man of God's own choosing. Everything else, there might be question marks and ellipses and paragraphs where I thought, did I make a mistake here? Would I have done it differently? Those two things. I waited, I trusted, and I absolutely know they were the bedrock decisions of my life. So dear Janet, age 18, wait on
1: the Lord. Excellent. All right, final question. What do you want your epitaph to read?
0: Hmm. You know, it's so funny. I have thought about that a lot. I think we all do. But I have to tell you, I would I would practice plagiarism, and I would take it from somebody else's tombstone. Craig and I were in London the day after Princess Diana had her funeral. All the flowers were still outside of Westminster, and there were all kinds of people milling around that great cathedral, and there was a Church of England cleric, female, walked up and she goes, are you here as tourists? And we said we were visiting. We hadn't come to England for Diana by any stretch of the imagination. We were actually hiking in Scotland and came back by way of London to fly home. And she said, to have thoughts, and I'm looking around this august cathedral, which is where kings and poets and artists are married. It's exquisite. And I said, yes. I said, I am profoundly impressed with the truth that whether you're a prince or a pauper, someday you stand before a king. Mm-hmm. And she kind of rustled and straightened her collar and said, yes, and may we all do good works, and took off. And I thought, no, you missed that one by a mile. But as Craig and I continued to walk through the cathedral, there are some very dramatic markers of people, tombs that have got images of the king or the queen or very ornate placards. But there's a small little placard in the corner, and it simply says, William Wilberforce. He lived his life with the eloquence of the gospel. And I thought, oh, If I could have someone say of her, Mm. she lived her life with the eloquence of the gospel, that would be profound. I would want that to be, and I would give, obviously, due deference to William Wilberforce. But if if we could live our lives with the eloquence of the gospel, they would have seen Jesus in me. And I think that's the most important thing of all.
1: Janet Parshall has been broadcasting from the nation's capital for... Over two decades, she's not that old, however. Um, (laughs) (laughs) She speaks across the country on issues that are current, that are on the cusp, on the edge. Multiple author, multiple books. Her latest, Buyer Beware, Finding Truth in the Marketplace of Ideas. Janet and Craig live outside of Northern Virginia. They have four children, six grandchildren. She's a dear friend, lover like crazy. And thanks for being on the broadcast, Janet, and look forward to having you back very soon.
0: Thank you, brother. What a wonderful idea that you and I got to spend time together. So I thank you for the invitation.
1: Blessings. Give Craig a hug for me, will you?
0: I shall. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, Mixed and Mastered by Sonomorphic and Music Composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.